And then the angel appearing to Mary and saying, this little boy is going to be king. He's going to sit on the throne of David, the forever throne, the prophesied forever throne, the one like a son of man is in you, Mary. The king, the Messiah, the Savior. And then Pilate saying, I find no guilt in this man. I find no sin in this man. This man wrapped in a robe of purple, of royalty, a crown of thorns on his head, purposefully laying down his life to bring sinful people into his kingdom. What glory, Lord, we celebrate this evening, this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, band, for playing. Thank you, the many of you who read, especially the, uh, the different languages. That was pretty cool. So the first was Spanish. The second was Chinese. Does anybody know what the third one was? Haitian Creole. Is that correct, Bill? Yes. Okay, Haitian Creole. That one I could actually follow. Couldn't quite follow the Chinese. Well, you have a candle with you. You got as you came in tonight. And many of us actually don't know. I didn't know till looking up the history of candles. Did you know the first candles uh, with wicks probably came around 5,000 years ago in 3000 BC in Egypt? They rolled up papyrus as the wick. They dipped it in beeswax or beef fat. So that's kind of how they did it. That probably smelled really nasty. And that actually is the history of candles in many ways. There's a lot of like animal fats, so they smelled pretty nasty. In China, the candle wicks were often rice paper. The wax would be a combination of plants and insects kind of mushed together to make a sweet little candle. Japan, they used tree nuts as their wax. In India, they boiled the fruit of a cinnamon tree. That would smell good for the wax. In the late 18th century, whale oil was often a favorite use for wax, um, and it didn't smell as bad, so that was why lots of people liked it. And then in the late 1800s, the candle advancement and interest declined. Anybody guess why candle interest declined in the late 1800s? Electricity. So the light bulb in 1879, the first electric light bulb, was invented, so the interest dwindled until, as far as history goes, and I didn't know this, until around the 1980s, they became really popular then, but not for putting out light, right, but for decoration, for fragrance, for mood-setting purposes. The soybean wax was a favorite product in the 1990s, um, and the National Candle Association, did you even know there was a national candle. So maybe you can apply. Anybody wants to be part of the National Candle Association. It's a real thing. says that candles continue to grow in their popularity, but not just to light up dark areas, because our phones can do that now, but really to set the mood for warmth and for aroma. Now, candles' original usage was obviously for light, to light up the darkness, to provide visibility to the weary traveler, to comfort for the fearful child, or a corner to read or write for the sleepless family member in the night. If you open up to John chapter 1, we're going to find that the true light, the, the candle, if you will, 
of Jesus is actually for that original purpose, to light, to light up darkness. And it doesn't just give light for the reading or light for the journey, but light for all of life. In John chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. First, we want to look at, in this passage, God's initiative of the true light. The initiative of the true light. Jeremy Tree, in his book, Seek First, says this, The greatest thing about following Jesus is, some of us might fill in that blank, his comfort or his peace or his gifts or heaven or something like that. But Jeremy Tree says, the greatest thing about following Jesus is Jesus. You get Jesus. You get relationship with Jesus. It's one we've read scripture after scripture after scripture about. That's the true light that came into the world. And John in his gospel wants the people, the readers, to know Jesus. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is the light of the world. There is no shifting shadow with Jesus. And he's the true light in, in this way. And this is kind of what you get at as you read the gospel of John. Manna was bread. Jesus is the true bread. Israel was called the vine. Jesus is the true vine. And here we see Jesus is the true light. He's the original. He's the author. He's the true. This is the light that came into the world. But it's not just that he came. It's a continuous action of his coming. This continuous reality of the light coming of Jesus. He came in the incarnation, but who Jesus is, the illuminating effects of Jesus, the awakening effects of Jesus, the shining into the world of Jesus continues even now, where the Apostle Paul would even pray that we continually have the, the eyes of our heart enlightened. This light coming is speaking of the God-man taking on flesh. Philippians 2, 6-7 so say that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped. He did not grasp after his godness while he was in the flesh here, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. Verse 14 of John 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word in John 1, at one chat, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This logos, this is the Word. This is Jesus. This is God in 
the flesh. And he dwelt with us. And, and that word for flesh in the original language is sarks. Kids, can you say that with me? Sarks. It kind of just sounds like kind of, as you even say it, sarks. And it could have been translated in different ways, or not that word. John could have written that, that Jesus became a man, or Jesus became human, or there's other ways he could have said this, but he said Jesus, the word became sarks. He became flesh. And that word flesh means he became, he became part of the weakness and fragility of humanity. All the kind of grotesqueness of it. Just don't picture this if you don't want to, but a baby being born is not a pretty thing. It's sarks. It's disgusting in some ways, and beautiful and disgusting at the same time. Jesus was born into the world. He was born into the crude, brutal, darkness, human weakness, and fragility. Holy God put on flesh, human flesh, and dwelt among us, is what John's trying to get at. He's trying to get the, oh, wow, as we read that passage. But we've got to know who he is, who put on flesh. It was God put on flesh, and he dwelt with us. That word dwelt could be translated as pitch a tent or like set up camp with us or tabernacle. Just as Yahweh made his presence known in the temple, the tabernacle, this massive tent of the tabernacles in the middle of Israel's camp, and God indwelt that. His glory shone in that. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, we get a window into the glory. Just let me read this passage, 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. Just get this passage of who Jesus is and the glory of it. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So you get this idea, these kind of contrasting ideas of the flesh, the sarks, and the glory of God, this fire that puts you on, your, on the pavement, on your face, all comes together in Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 continues, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this holy fire, the staggering glory, becomes flesh. And the rest of the Gospel of John, I encourage you to spend more time reading the Gospel of John, shows the glory that is seen in Jesus with authority to, to speak, authority to heal, authority to raise the dead, and the glory to love the child, the glory to care about a centurion, the glory shown in God the Son. One thing we've got to understand is glory in the Bible is always linked to something. It's always linked to grace. 
When Moses in Exodus 33 and 34 says to God, show me your glory. Here's what the Lord says. He, he declares who he is. He says to Moses, as the answer to show me your glory, he declares his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's the wonderful link. God's glory and his grace, his undeserved favor toward humanity. That's what we see through the Old Testament. That's what we see in the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, who he becomes source, becomes flesh, and dwells among us. And friends, if we understand God's word, we marvel at that. If we don't understand God's word or we don't know Jesus as Savior, we recoil at that. Because mankind wants to earn favor with God. We want to trust ourselves. We want to be in control. We don't want the help of someone else. But this passage says he's full of grace and truth. The truth of Jesus. Grace is always accompanied with truth. John 1 says he's grace and truth. Jesus is, is gracious. But it's a grace based on his authority, his truth. This is not truth that is relative. You have your truth and I have my truth. This is not truth that is negotiable. Well, Jesus, I like that part of you, like that being nice to little kids, that's great. But I don't like that lay down your life, like pick up your cross daily and follow me. I don't like that truth. You get it all or you get none of it. No, it's grace and truth that has authority and it's non-negotiable which leads, secondly, to mankind's response. Verse 10 and 11 speak of how people, particularly Israel, but all people, respond to Jesus' authority. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now note again, the world owes its very existence to Jesus. He created it. But it's astonishing what this passage says. One scholar states there's two astonishing facts in verses 9 through 11. The first is that the Word became flesh, the sarks, the human frailty. He comes into that. That's astonishing. The second is that man would have nothing to do with him. It's astonishing. Commentator Leon Morris says, John is concerned that we should miss neither the good news of the incarnation of God nor the tragedy of man's rejection of God. The light is such good news and gives life, but the light also exposes evil in all humanity. If you read through the Gospel of John, you find that some people believe in him, and some people believe in him for a while until he starts saying hard things. And then they walk away. And then even Peter, one of the disciples, goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what you're saying is really hard. And Jesus says, do you want to walk away as well? Like Jesus isn't compromising, negotiating for anyone. Many see him as a threat. They plot to murder the Messianic king. Like the Jewish people of the Old Testament, many are stiff-necked. Many will do what is right in their own eyes. They will exchange the glory of God for a lie. They hate the very one for whom they owe their existence. 
And yet, as in the Old Testament, there remains a remnant. Look at verse 12 and 13. But to all who believe, sorry, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the, the status to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Those who receive Jesus' sinless life on their behalf, who believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, who died a substitutionary death, raised to life in the glorious resurrection, they are born again because as Jesus died a death for them, they died. And he raised to life for them. They are raised. And this is they're born of the Spirit. They're regenerated. They're adopted into the family. Here's what Paul says when he reflects on this. In Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. And ladies, if you're like, I don't want to be a son, I want to be a daughter, that's weird. The son in this text is talking about the one who gets the inheritance. Trust me, you want to be a son just like I want to be the bride. Like there's different imagery in the texts of scripture uh, that talk about things that we're like, I don't know what to do with that. Jesus is the husband. We are the bride, the church. That's good news. To be born again, not from our own exertions, not from our flesh, not from our will. It is God's sovereign will is what this text says. And for the Jews that John's writing to, it's not because your bloodline, it's not because your family background, it's not because grandpa was a pastor, it's not any of that. It's because of the grace of God that you've received Jesus as your Savior. This is about God. Salvation is from first to last a gift of God. The incarnation of Jesus is from first to last about Jesus. And friends, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, know this grace. This grace is about God's initiative towards you. And he has you here tonight in his kind, sovereign plan because he's initiating towards you. We don't read these passages just randomly. We read about the incarnation of Jesus that rescues humanity. The the scriptures say he seeks and saves the lost. Some of us in here may feel lost. We just feel. We don't know what the next step is. Oh, friend, that's, that's where Jesus is like, yeah, I'm here for you. And for those who know Jesus as your Savior, isn't that wonderful truth that he comes for us, he initiates toward us? In a moment, we're going to light our candles. And friends, let this not just be a tradition, but friends, let us be remembering. I'm going to light it and I'm going to pass it that Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then believers, he said, you are the light of the world. Let this be a symbol to us, not just that we're lighting a candle and then it spreads, but that God has lit us as a candle to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Let it, if you're not a believer right now, may God light the candle of your heart tonight that you would trust Jesus as your Savior. So we're going to turn the lights down, and I'm going to ask those guys I asked earlier to come up. 
And as I light this candle that represents Jesus Christ, you can stand and you can have your candle.